an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. Well, Jeff, I want to know what you thought of my movie. Um, you know, I was not very impressed, Steve. I think you need to put a little bit more work into these things. <laughs> we were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world 8 bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginners' all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hey, Steve. Hey, Jeff. What are we doing this week? We are going to talk about both the 1989 Atari show in at Disneyland, and we're going to talk about your new movie story. The, this is season six, episode, episode two. two. Let's call this one Lost in the Desert. to talk a little bit about um the world of atari or the atari fest it was 1989 it was the disneyland anaheim atari fest yeah it it was in 1989 we have a story about about a game we got there and finishing it after well 1989 years it's 2022 right So, so 33 years 33 years so 33 years down the line, actually finishing it. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but let's talk about the world of Atari. So this is, this is the, this is, we were, you know, imagine it's 1989 and we are Atari right. ST owners. And I know there's other people out there who were Atari ST owners at the same time. And in America, and I'm sure in the UK, it's kind of a, the ST starting to slip away to the Amiga as well, right? Um, you've okay. You've always seen the Amiga get some games the ST didn't, and vice versa. But the games the Amiga got that the ST didn't were actually like more powerful ones. Maybe like things that maybe people thought couldn't be done on an ST unless you really knew what you're doing. And then it started to get more to the fact where after 1990, which is only a few months after this, 
maybe there was a lot more games. Then after 91, a lot more. And after 92, basically, you know, a lot more. We're just going to the Amiga. Right. And and so imagine it's 1989 and there are there used to be, as we're Atari ST owners, I think we just got our 1040 ST at Federated Group. So... 1989 it would have been a year this would be a year after we got our oh Atari did we get it in 1988 list. i thought we got a 1989 summer summer of 1988 okay so we have a 1040 st that used to be that we could go down to software etc Dalton software etc uh or maybe crown books even federated uh, group even federated different places and they would have atari st software but by this time most of that atari st software has disappeared yes and the only places to really get software are specialty computer stores there's either a specialty atari stores like mid-cities atari which was in bellflower i believe or um computer games plus which is out in orange which was an import store right so i don't people don't care where those things are right. but they're they're not close to us right not like that an close. hour and in the los angeles area which is a huge area with a lot of people there were maybe three stores yeah maybe three places to go buy atari st stuff right so we heard that they were going to have this atari fest at the disneyland hotel i don't know how we heard I, we must have seen it somewhere. They, must, in a they, magazine. Ad, they did advertise it in these in the in the magazines because this okay. ST log does have an advertisement for it earlier, but I couldn't find it. Um, but I remember seeing it when I was going through here, and then I they have the whole article about it afterwards. Came out a month afterwards or two months afterwards. So we were super excited, and we collected up all the money we had, which was not much at the time. I think I probably went with a hundred bucks, which was a mistake. I should have gone with a lot, a lot more. more money. Yeah, I probably came with about the same amount. And it's like, we should have really come with what we could have. Yeah, well, a lot more. And we go down to the Disneyland Hotel and don't real that, realize that it costs 15 bucks to park. Oh, yeah. You remember that, too? Uh, yeah, I remember that, too. So we get down there. We get inside. And it's probably the size of four good-sized high school cafeterias. I think that's the size of the place. They said um, about 7,000 people showed up and packed the place, and I would say 7,000 would pack about that many sized cafeterias. Yeah. Uh, there were probably, about, I want to say, 10 rows of 10 vendors each or something. Or maybe it was on, it, was, it wasn't huge, but there was, there was a good amount of stuff there, mostly kind of music and business oriented. Not a lot of games, which is what we were looking for. But there were a few tables piled high with games, weren't there, Steve? Yeah, well, Computer Games Plus was there with, but we were looking, I'm not sure what we thought we were going to find, um, but I know at, at one of the tables was for Magnetic Images, which was a company that had a game called Lost Dutchman Mine, and the game looked utterly fantastic on that show floor especially for our experiences at that time with what we we're doing with dad at the time yeah when you when you when you flipped over the box it looked like a role-playing game set in the old west which is unheard of um, you know there was i think there were think there was a scott adams adventure set in the old west it was probably the closest thing sunset right writers for you know video game outlaw i mean there's there's very little that's set in the in the classic or whatever you want to call the old west the mythical old west right so, so look at that i'm like wow like i gotta pick this up i don't do you remember anything else we bought there 
anything we got there that we purchased that way, not from Computer Games Plus's stand, would have been pure uh, USA-made software. So we might have got like Cyber Paint or Cyber Studio there. Maybe there was things that no, we, I, we, we had Cyber no, Cyber Paint before that, way before that. Yeah. But there were other things like we had LDW Power, which was which was basically Excel. At, for the Atari ST, we had a, there were things that we would purchase that weren't game wise. We were trying to use this computer as our main computer and show it was better than a PC or a Mac, just because we needed to, like not just show it to anyone, but just to us. So there's software we got that wasn't game wise at the time. But we picked up lots of magazines. We picked up, I'm sure we picked up Lost Dutchman, and there were a couple of the pieces of software. We that might be where we got Gold of the Realm. Which was also by Magnetic. Well, that's Images. also by Magnetic. But I didn't know we had that. We did. We had Gold of the Realm. Oh, sure. I must not have. I don't think I played it. I want to play it, but I, I don't think I. I don't remember playing Gold of the Realm. Gold of the Realm. And it's, it's also by one of the same guys. Yeah, no, we had this. You walk around. Yes, we had this for sure. You and I tried to play this together. We almost finished it up. We had Gold of the Realm. That's weird. I don't remember um, it. I know you don't remember it. Um, but David Lindsay uh, was de developed both of these. He was the, what was he, the game designer or game designer? He was a game designer of both of them. Okay. Um, Lost Dutchman and Gold of the Realm. Um, I did see that he had worked on both of those games, but um, I didn't know much more about it except for that. There's not a lot of information about Magnetic Realms, if that is even the name of the company. There's only two games that are those two games. Not much information about them. Sorry, nope. mag magnetic images or magnetic or the distri distributor, which was Enterprise, which that's the only game they distributed. Yeah, so there's very little, and and you may tend to think that maybe they're one and the same. Well, um, I'm thinking that the year that they started making this game, which was probably early '88 or '87, to make a game this big and Gold of the Realm, which was an RPG, would have been about a year and a half before we purchased this. And yeah. at that time, the ST looked like it was pretty good in the USA. You could make some money on it. By the time this came out, the bottom had dropped out in the USA, at least. It was hit rock bottom. Yeah, so it felt like World of Atari was like, to me, like the last gasp of yes. the Atari ST. It was like kind of a desperation move. Atari will put on this Atari Fest and then you can sell whatever you want. Everyone there will pretend like Atari is the biggest deal on the planet. But <laughs> Well, Atari didn't put it on, though. It was put on by somebody else, and Atari finally agreed to show up to it and have a couple big boots. But And I think it was because they wanted to show off the musical stuff and the Stacy and a couple other things. But they were focusing most on Europe at this time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. So um, uh, anyway, here's the thing. I wrote and recorded a story for this. It should be on YouTube as well. And it's it's really long, okay? It's I mean, good, we're talking though. almost an hour long story about Lost Dutchman Mine and not just not just the game, but what it meant to us as kids with the things that we did with dad. And I, I, I suggest we listen to that right now. Yeah, let's take a listen to it. Sounds good. The Lost Dutchman Mine. Part 1. The Game. What does it mean to finish a computer game? Why are people sometimes compelled to get to the end state of a game decades after they first played it? 
What if that game is so obscure, almost no one alive even remembers it exists? What if the developers never made any other games? They did no interviews, and there's hardly any digital ephemera left over. What if the game still exists in the back of your mind, in a place that calls to you every so often, wanting you to return to it to see if you could play through it? The Lost Dutchman Mine is such a game for me. Released for the Atari ST and the Amiga in 1989 by Magnetic Images and programmed by Steve Marshall with graphics by David Lindsley. According to all online resources I can find, it is the only game programmed by Steve Marshall and one of two designed by David Lindsley. It appears that the pair formed Enterprise Software and were based in Hunt Valley, Maryland, but it's hard to really know for sure. I bought this game originally at a table dedicated to it in the summer of 1989 at the World of Atari at Disneyland Hotel in Anaheim, California. The World of Atari was a kind of last gasp for Atari computer fans in the USA. The conference promised to gather together vendors alongside Atari itself in a show of defiance against the growing menace of the IBM PC onslaught threatening our beloved Atari ST, the computer that gave lower-income kids like my brother and I power without the price. I recall the table manned by two guys in their late 20s or 30s. It's quite possible I purchased it directly from the developers. Knowing the Atari ST at the market at the time, this would have not been out of the question. The list price was $49.99, but I recall I bought it at a show special for a price of something like $34.95. It still ate up almost all my cash on hand, but I love the idea of it so much that I did not care. A game about gold prospecting in the Old West felt like the exact game I had been looking to play for years. The package for Lost Dutchman Mine promised a very deep and engrossing strategy and action game with mild RPG elements. It said, you'll play poker, down a drink, or purchase a burrow. Visit a livery stable, saloon, assay office, newspaper, jail. Explore caves, mountains, rivers of the desert to find lost treasure. Fight heat, hunger, thirst, Indians, rattlesnakes, and claim jumpers. Pan for gold in the river, pick for gold in the mines, capture a wanted bandit, or cast your line to try to catch your dinner. Real-time animated gameplay, different game every time you start, over a hundred mines and caves to explore. This is one of the first examples of an action-adventure RPG set against real-world events instead of fantasy or sci-fi. The closest cousin to it, I would say, is Sid Meier's Pirates, but that's giving Lost Dutchman a lot of credit. I recall reading the back of the package over and over as we left the world of Atari and drove home. The game felt so engrossing and so deep. I could not wait to boot it up and try it on our new 1040 STF, purchased after selling our 520 ST to our friend Brandon and financing the rest with the help of our sister, the only person in our family who would ever establish credit at Atari's newest retail exploration, the Federated Group. But when I got home and played the game, something did not seem right. The graphics were wonderfully animated and the little startup town was cute, but I just could not get the hang of it. I wanted to get out and explore the mines for gold so badly that I jump-started the game every time I played it. Lost Dutchman Mine seemingly had everything I wanted from a game. 
yet it left me cold. Instead of taking my time to carefully build up my abilities in the game, I would go out searching for treasure as soon as possible and die nearly every time. It did not help that the 1.0 version Crash Bug hit me sometimes when sound started to play. I must have started the game 20 times, but never got far enough to understand how to really play it. Over the years, Lost Dustman Mine has stood out as one of the few games that confounded me, but still drew me back, both on the actual Atari ST and through game emulation, taunting me to try to figure out just how to play it. I've managed to avoid the call. Until today, that is. Part 2. Levining. I was not a gold-prospecting neophyte by the age of 19. By 1989, when I bought the Lost Dutchman Mine, and for the better part of a decade, my brother and I had been on gold-prospecting trips with our dad. Unlike other kids in our town who went on vacation to national parks, Lake Tahoe on cruises, or trips to Hawaii or Europe for summer vacations, my dad spent all of his two weeks a year vacation time packing guns, gold pans, snake bite kits, picks and shovels, metal detectors, and his twin boys into his pickup truck and carting us off to any historical site, ghost town, and mine claim within driving distance to search for, well, really anything. Anything that would let him find his fortune, or to a lesser extent, anything at all that would make him feel like he was part of history and not just passing through it. When we were preteens sitting around a campfire, he told us stories of being a kid in the 1930s, with lots of firecrackers and cherry bombs, and being in the army in the 1940s. I was in Italy, he said one of the times, and the next day was going to the front. Some guys and I snuck out at night and were caught. We were sent back the next day and I never saw any action. I loved hearing these stories. Even though they were often repeated over the years, it was obvious that they were his origin stories and they were very important to him. This one in particular gave me anxiety when I was little after I realized if he had not been sent home, he could have died at the hands of the Nazis and I might not have ever existed. And while I would have rather gone someplace else some of the time in the summer, I felt for my dad too. I wanted him so badly to discover whatever it was he was looking for. Most of the time, of course, we discovered nothing at all. Instead, my brother and I read imported Atari ST computer magazines by the light of the campfire as my dad planned out what we would search for next. And while I knew nothing of the best waves to surf on the pipeline on the Big Island or the best way to say an informal hello in French to my concierge, I could name just about every ghost town and historic site within a hundred mile radius of Lee Vining, California. And this is why I was so very excited to find this game and get home to play it. This is a game that somewhat mirrored my real life. It promised to allow me to be successful at what had become a yearly fruitless task on dirt roads in Northern California. What I did not realize was that the game itself would come to signify the exact same feeling from those trips with my dad. Instead of success, it promised a Sisyphean sojourn decades in the making. Part 3 the Lost Dutchman Mine Legend.
The instruction booklet for the Lost Dutchman Mine lays out the story of this legendary treasure. Somewhere deep in the vast and rugged superstition mountains of Arizona, there lies a hidden gold mine of immense richness. It was allegedly discovered by a prospector named Jacob Waltz, an old German immigrant who wandered the superstition mountains during the 1800s. He claimed the mine was so rich that the gold could be removed only with a knife. Waltz died on October 25th, 1891, but he left behind many clues as to the location of his fabulous mine. One clue was to look for a pointed peak. Many people believe this peak is the landmark known today as Weaver's Needle. He also claimed his mine was located where no miner would ever look. Many old maps have surfaced purporting to show the location of Waltz's treasure, but none have ever proved genuine. This story is at once both unique and archetypal. It's one of the most enduring legends of the Old West, but at the same time feels like the backstory of every treasure hunting TV show on the Discovery Channel. The game itself is unique in that it was one of the very few games set in the Old West of America, even to this day. At the time, it stood out among the other fantasy and sci-fi games lining the floor of World of Atari, and it still does today. That might be why, even if the game is not as amazing as I hoped it would be, it's endured as a contest I still so desperately want to see to its end. Part 4. Time. Like many games I played on my Atari ST computer, Lost Dutchman Mine is a bit obscure. You won't find much information about it online. There's a good video and a blog I'll talk about later, both of which were very helpful when playing. But aside from those, there's not a lot of chatter about this game, and not very many reviews. In many ways, my obsession with The Lost Dutchman Mine is a microcosm of the cultural irrelevancy, at least in the USA, that plagues people like myself, who were diehard Atari fans in the USA and skipped the Nintendo age, instead jumping into the 16-bit computer realm almost a decade before Nintendo even uttered the phrase 16-bit. My young adulthood was spent playing games like Cult, Captain Blood, Dungeon Master, Dragonflight, Xenon 2, Foundations Waste, Kickoff Player Manager, and Fantasy. Games that most people my age, the same people who worship at the altar of Sonic, Zelda, and Metroid, would not recognize if they were smacked in the face with them. Not that I blame them. Sometimes I too wish I could get as excited about the next Metroidvania, Sonic movie, or Link adventure. It would make things so much easier. I'd be relevant and have modern games to play. Instead, I mostly have unfinished business, left over from the 8 and 16-bit computer days that I'm now, as I'm getting older, finding myself more and more apt to be obsessed with completing. In short, my goal was to finish this game, The Lost Dustman Mine, that pretty much no one else in the world really cares about. That fact didn't make my quest any less compelling to me, and in some ways made it more so. So just about 33 years after I stopped playing the physical Atari ST version of Lost Dustman Mine, I picked it up to play again. I still own the actual physical game, mind you, but I get the ROM from Atari Mania anyway, and I use the Steam emulator to play it on my laptop. I create a blank disc for saved games, and then I reboot the emulated 1040 ST with TOS 1.02, the compatible hardware, with disc 1 and drive 1, 
on a disk 2 and drive 2. I have Steam set to emulate the speed of the Atari ST disk drive, which is helpful for Lost Dutchman Mine as it plays several Old West tunes as the game loads. It takes more time to load this way, but also exudes the nuance of playing the game on real hardware. After the title screen and credits roll, the game starts with my little minor man, Avatar, in the very real town of Goldfield, Arizona, which in 2022 curiously is located near Lost Dutchman State Park, with $250 in my pocket and the goal to find my fortune in the Superstition Mountains. If I'm lucky, I will also locate the Lost Dutchman Mine. What strikes me first is that the graphics are really well done. Very cute. Well-drawn, 16-bit sprites with black outlines that look so distinct, yet just like they belong on the Atari ST. The little minor man avatar is cute and well animated. He walks slowly right to left on the screen. Maybe because everything moves more slowly when searching for the Lost Dutchman Mine, a quest that has lasted 140 years in real time. When I start the game, the first thing I do is tour the various shops and buildings. I'm not sure if I did this back in 1989, but I do it now because I have the goal of actually finishing the game this time out, and that means I need all the information I can get. From left to right in the town, the shops exist in this order. Doctor's office, where you you can get bullet wounds, arrow wounds, and snake bites cured. Saloon, where you can sleep, buy sarsaparilla or whiskey, or play a game of poker. Mercantile, this is where you buy your mining supplies and food. Assay office, where you sell your gold to make cash or stake your claim to the lost desperate mine, if you find it. Bank, where you store money so the robbers don't steal it when you're out in the desert. Newspaper, where you can learn the latest news around town. Jail, where you can see the bounties awarded for capturing various outlaws. Stable, where you can buy mules to help you carry more equipment and ore. With $250 in my pocket, I head to the mercantile first. I plan to go at this with a strategy this time. With 33 years of game playing behind me, I have a better idea about how games work now than I did back in 1989. I search the offerings and see canteens, food, a gold pan, and a fish hook. I buy all of these. I recall that panning for gold on the river was one of the things I was successful at 33 years ago. I also noticed the six shooter and the bullets, but they are too expensive and I don't want to extend myself too much at first. There are five icons located at the bottom of the screen next to a temperature gauge. Money, health, food, equipment, gun, and save load. I've learned how to play games over the past 33 years. I've learned that the most successful games have a system, a game loop, or an engagement loop that once understood helps the player be successful when playing. I figured if I was going to be successful playing Lost Desperate Mind, I needed to find this loop, if it exists. What I find instead is three interconnected loops, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The first loop I discovered is what I call the pan grind. Part five, the pan grind. I leave town by walking my little man all the way out to the left, and I'm shown the overhead map of the Superstition Mountains and the surrounding area. This is where the game feels a lot like a classic computer role-playing game. The town has most of the same buildings, and the overhead map feels like the colorful, detailed map from a game like Fantasy or Wizard's Crown. As I recall, there are also random encounters as you cross the desert, and without a gun, I have no way to defend myself. I save the game so I can reload it if need be, and then I travel across the desert at an angle towards a straight part of the river just above town. I make it without incident. When I make it to the river, I click the water button to fill my canteen, and then the fish button. 
Clicking fish brings up a very simple mini game where you try to catch fish with your fishing line. You can only move the line up and down trying to snare a fish mouth with the hook. When you hook a fish, you bring it back up to the surface and it becomes food in your food inventory, which is separate from your equipment inventory. Once I'm filled with fish, I click the pan button. My cutely animated little minor man, Avatar, bends down and rustles his pan back and forth. When he's done, a little bag of ore is placed in the equipment inventory. Along with the pan and fish hooks, I can carry eight bags of ore. When all the spots on my inventory are filled up, I save the game again and set off across the desert. This time I'm ambushed by an Indian. I know, not very progressive, but that's the danger of playing an older game. I run, then reload the game and try to cross the desert again and this time I make it. I go to the assay office and sell my bags of ore. I make enough money to buy a canteen, a gun, and bullets, but not enough money to buy a mule yet. The mule will be my second big purchase. With the mule, I get 10 more slots to carry gold ore, which will allow me to carry even more back from the river. On the way back from my next trip to the river, I get ambushed again, but this time I fight off the attacker with my gun, bullets, and I don't need to reload the game. This is another mini game that is quite simple. It's very much like the old Gangster Alley type games where bad guys show up in a window and you have to shoot them before they shoot you. The sequence feels very random and not well thought out at all. I would have preferred even an Atari VCS Outlaw style side view contest because at least there would have been some skill involved. Part six, The Gunslinger. My dad brought his guns with him on every trip prospecting, partially as protection, but also because he loved them so dearly. He was very much an adherent of the Second Amendment and was a lifelong member of the NRA. While I don't share his love of guns, I can understand it. They were a technology that helped create the society we live in. Without them, in his view, none of our modern trappings would exist. He saw the world through the eyes of the generation that had to arm themselves and fight the Nazis in World War II. He knew the stakes were high, and to him, guns made it all possible. I have a similar feeling about computers. It was a technology that I believe would help create the society we live in and build the future into the 21st century. My dad taught us to shoot when we were very little, and on these prospecting trips the guns came out, sometimes on hikes into the wilderness and other times at ghost town sites. I recall one time at a town site named Masonic near Bodie, California, the metal detecting got old very fast, and just as I thought we were going to leave, my dad instead pulled out a suitcase with his reproduction Colt 1800s revolvers inside. He filled the barrel multiple times with hollow point bullets as we shot tab and fresca cans and a bag of old fruit he had in the truck. This was nothing like Gangster Alley. No bad guys popped their heads up to be easily shot with a mouse click. The trigger on the Colt did not have to be pulled. Instead, you lightly squeeze the trigger. The first time a bullet comes out is a total surprise, but you are very ready the second time. Part 7. Mini Games It dawns on me, after experiencing the fishing, panning, and gunfight, mini games, and Lost Dust Mind, that they are very thin experiences. After three or three years, my view of the quality of Lost Dust Mind becomes more clear. The overall idea is interesting, but the parts don't seem to be adding up, even for a game made in 1989. 
Still though, I'm enjoying myself. The process is very much like a grind in an RPG. There are no levels per se in Lost Dustbin Mine, but every little added benefit you're able to achieve feels like it anyway. I quickly go to the river and pan all I can and return to Goldfield. After a couple trips, I can afford to buy one mule, and then the second mule, and then the third. I eat the fish I get from the river until the river is emptied. Then I buy cheese and bread from the store instead. Finally, I have enough money to buy all the mining equipment in the mercantile. A rope, a pick, gloves, matches, a lantern. I buy more canteens too, and more food to stock up, choosing to buy as much steak as possible because damn it, I'm a prospector who likes his steak. Eventually, I'm ready to set out, past the river, and head directly for the mountains to try my hand at actual gold mining. It is the end of day number one, playing the game in real time. I save, shut down, and wait until morning to try again. I receive a text from a friend saying that his cancer has returned, but he's still fighting it. I can tell he sounds defeated. He was the same friend who was with us when we went to World of Atari. He was there when I bought Lost Dustman Mine for the first time. I always thought there would be ample time in life for me to finish games like Lost Dustman Mine, but the text brings everything back into focus. Maybe not. Maybe I just need to get things done that I want to get done before there's no time left at all. And one of those things is to finish the Lost Dustman Mine. Part 8 Panning the South Fork. I learned to pan gold for real. Not from my dad, but from a lesson given to me from a couple real, honest-to-goodness gold miners named Dick and Tony at a makeshift campground named Stumbletown. Named Stumbletown, mind you, because most of the inhabitants stumbled around drunk on the south fork of the Stanislaus River. My dad took us there in the summer of 1992 to search for gold with pans, a gasoline-powered dredge, which is kind of like a river bottom vacuum, and a sluice box. Stumbletown was located on a public claim, which my dad found from a list when he joined the GPAA, the Gold Prospectors Association of America, after seeing an infomercial for it on TV. My dad proudly displayed his GPAA window and bumper stickers on his Toyota truck with Lance Camper on the back that we traveled around in our adventures. Gold panning, you see, is not like they teach you at Knott's Berry Farm, a Calico Ghost Town, Tombstone, Dollywood, or any other tourist attraction where the myths of the Old West are kept on life support. Those places put a high priority on making sure much of the gold bearing sand leaves your pan as fast as possible, sloshing around a whole bunch of material hastily until you're left with a small collection of mostly valueless gold flakes at the bottom. Instead, real panning for gold is an art, as the miners Dick and Tony so kindly showed us while we camped at Stumbletown. First, you need to find a place in the river where gold might collect, sometimes at a turn where sediment might get trapped from the flow of the river. You dig deep into the sandy bottom and look for black sand, which is mostly ironed. Black sand means heavy deposits are in the area. Gold is heavy for its size, so other heavy metals are an indication it might be present. With a pan full of black sand, you slowly move it in a clockwise motion, letting just enough water come into the pan from the river to lift the top layers of the sand back into the moving water. If you do this long enough and there is gold present, you will see it line the small ridges along the side of the gold pan. Dick and Tony informed us while we were there that the GPAA was really not anything special at all. It was started by a fellow miner they named the Buzzard, who struck it rich just up the river, and the GPAA club was just a way to take money from people like my 
dad, city slickers who thirsted for adventure. The high rollers are up at the Lost Dutchman, Dick told us. That club costs a thousand dollars to join and they're sitting on a rich claim. The Lost Dutchman was the name of a fancy private campground we'd passed the night before looking for a place to park the camper. It had nothing to do with the actual Lost Dutchman mine, but as I write this, I find it curious that the name was the same as the game, a detail I'd forgotten for 30 years. I recall I sensed a bit of envy in Dick's voice. He and Tony and us two were all stuck at Stumbletown on a public claim panning for gold while the rich people stayed in relative luxury at the Lost Dutchman. The fact that the wealthy gold mining association, one that required a hefty fee to join and had a camp located in the south fourth of Stanislaus, just up the river in the makeshift camp of Stumbletown, and was named the Lost Dutchman Mining Association, was not lost on me back then either. It would have been nice to be able to go and stay at the Lost Dutchman camp while working on the Stanislaus, as it supposedly had flush toilets, showers, RV hookups, and picnic tables. Instead, Stumbletown featured a single portageon delivered the day we arrived, and that was it for amenities, save for some simple rough outlines of campsites created by erosion and time. I realize now that the idea of the Lost Dutchman is something stashed in the back of my mind. It symbolizes something just out of reach, something for other people that are not us to enjoy. People with money, just like the people who frequented the country clubs and racquetball places, locals only surf spots and private gyms where we grew up. My dad joined the GPAA hoping for an exclusive club only to find out there was another better one just beyond his grasp. I recall my dad was not very happy about the whole trip to dredge the Stanislaus at Stumbletown. He was a loner at heart, and my brother and I were his loyal companions. The other denizens like Dick and Tony, while nice guys, kind of got in the way of what he wanted to do. My dad wanted to show us how to pan for gold, not have some homeless miner do it for us. The next year we went back to the Stanislaus, but we went to the North Fork and never returned to Stumbletown. When we returned from our two-week trip in Stumbletown, my wife, then my girlfriend, and I went to Knott's Berry Farm, where I used Dick and Tony's panty techniques to score a huge bottle of gold from their gold panning attraction, much to the chagrin of the guy cast as the old miner working that day. He shooed me away and intimated that I should never come back. Part 9, Mine Explorer. The next day, I'm ready to start anew on day two with the Lost Dutchman Mine. As I walk the dog that morning, I can feel my breath still shortened from a bout of long COVID, an easy walk belabored by age and circumstances. My friend with cancer is on my mind. How much time do I have to finish things that I want to complete, to program all those things, to write all those books, to finish all those games? There's no guarantee of anything, is there? I get back home and fire up the laptop and the Steam emulator again. Soon I'm back in Goldfield, ready to continue my quest for the Lost Dutchman Mine. There's a map available in the Mercantile and my first thought is that this is a clue to where to find the treasure. However, after reviewing it, I can't make heads or tails of how it matches anything I've seen on the overhead map of the Superstition Mountains in the game. Instead of thinking more about it, I go to the nearest mountain range and start clicking around. When you click the fire button of the joystick, you are shown a close-up view of the local vicinity. I'm looking for a dark opening that leads to both mines and caves, but the process is very slow. I click all over the mountains, but only find one opening. When I go there, it's a cave with jagged walls. I walk to the end and find an open in the floor. I use my rope to go down, but I find a dead end. I leave the cave and I start searching again. I'm beginning to feel a sense of dread, like I've done this before with the same results. Back in 1989, I quit playing when I couldn't figure out what to do next, but this time is different. I did discover the pan grind, the first engagement loop, which I never really understood 33 years ago. That means the makers of the game had an idea of how to design a game system. There must be a system to this section of the game too. 
This felt like progress. After searching some more, I eventually found a mine to go inside. My little miner man is thirsty, so I give him a drink and notice that the mule's storage spaces are not present. I surmise that in the mines you are alone and the mules can't follow. My little miner man moves slowly through the mine, looking for gold deposits. When I find one, I press the fire button on the joystick and he hits the ground with a pick until the gold deposit disappears and is put into my inventory. I check, and the bag is much larger than the ones I brought back from gold panning. This must mean they are worth more money. But then, I own all the mining supplies in the store now. What do I need money for? As I go deeper into the mine and I collect more gold, sometimes there are cave-ins and sometimes I get knocked out by them. It slows me down. The whole process is slow, very slow. I can only carry a few bags of gold ore. I carry them back out of the mine and transfer them to my mules. I do this a bit more than travel back to town. I sell my gold ore for many times the amount of the panning ore, but then it hits me. Is this all I'm supposed to do? What is the next step? The mines and caves all look the same. The gold deposits look the same. The packaging for the game says there are 100 mines and caves to search, but I didn't realize they all looked pretty much identical. It's daunting to imagine searching all of those similar looking caves and mines for the lost dust with my slow move moving little miner man. The daunting task ahead of me becomes more clear. This could take a while. It's the end of day two in real time, so I save the game and put it away for the night. Part 10, Gold Mines. In all my years of prospecting with my dad, I never entered a gold mine or mine shaft. What might look like a fun cave from the outside is really one of the most dangerous places in the world. Completely dark, filled with rattlesnakes, cave-ins, old equipment, bottomless holes, rusting nails and equipment, my dad warned us that they should be avoided at all costs. Even going near mines was a problem, as they were usually surrounded by camouflage holes desperate miners dug after the ore played out from the mine proper. Even when we searched old ghost towns, we never, ever went near mine shafts. My dad told us this story a few times. I worked in a coal mine before I came to California in the 1950s. Two weeks after I left, the whole area I worked in had an accident, and many of the people I worked with died buried in the cave-in. I never go into any type of mine or cave anymore. They are just too dangerous. I've taken those words to heart my entire life. However, the danger it seemed in the Lost Dutchman was not that the caves would kill you, but that they might bore you to death. I needed to find the next step. Part 11, Help Online. On day number three, it is time for me to search online for help. My first choice was YouTube, where I found a very in-depth series of video by Old Man Gaming, who played through the Amiga version of the game. I happened to click on episode number seven, and I noticed that he was in one of the caves looking for parts of a map. The map! Apparently, the map sold in the mercantile was a kind of red herring. The actual map parts can be found in caves. That's what the caves are for! I did not have time to watch all of Old Man Gaming's videos, so I did another search and found a blog post about the game. It was Dave Rakowski's complete guide to Lost Dustman Mine. I read through the post and noticed a few things. 1. His map for the mercantile looked different from mine, so maybe the game truly is different every time. 2. He suggested always buying three ropes, not one, because the caves go deep where you find map pieces. 3. He mentioned that you could win map pieces by playing poker in the saloon. I did not want to read much more, I just wanted to nudge in the right direction, and this was it. I felt like I discovered the second loop of the game. The idea 
I believed, was to collect enough gold in the mines to afford to play high-stakes poker in the saloon. I imagined the goal was to make a huge bet like $10,000 a hand, and the poker player would offer a map piece instead of money to keep playing. The last thing I found online was the instruction manual. It was the Amiga version, but it worked. When I read the tips and tricks section, I noticed a couple things. One, they described the pan grind as an opening strategy. I probably should have read these instructions 33 years ago. Two, they say, check the edges of the mountains for caves and mines, not the middle. Bingo! This is my issue prospecting the first time. With this new information, I went back to the game. The mine grind ensued. I found mines on the edges of mountains and filled my mules with sacks of ore that I sold at the assay office for hundreds of dollars each. I avoided the caves for the most part and kept the mine grind going. Back and forth to town a couple times, that was all I needed. Soon I amassed about $20,000 and was ready to play poker for a piece of the map. Part 12, Penny Poker. After a day of fruitless prospecting with my dad, we would return to the camp. There was a fish stock river running by the campsite. My dad described the running water as the music of the high desert, and he was not wrong. The rushing water was a useful white noise to fall asleep to. After dinner, we'd sit by a fire, and my dad would tell us the major stories of his youth. We'd heard them all before, but as we got older, he'd update them with new details meant for an older audience. The story of his time overseas in World War II was the one that got updated the most as we matured. When once it was an innocent story of he and his buddies getting caught sneaking out of camp and being sent to the rear, it became a story of how they all got caught waiting in line for a two-bit Italian hooker, their last chance at some enjoyment before being sent to the Italian Alps where the U.S. Army was being torn apart by Axis artillery. Everyone was making something off our misery, he continued. You could get coffee from the Red Cross for five cents, but everyone knew you could have a Red Cross girl for five bucks. The shadow of the fire lapped at his face as he spoke. I knew by this time in my life that his time in World War II aided him. He wanted to run away and join the French Foreign Legion like he'd seen in the movie Beau Geste, but in reality, the U.S. infantry was much different than he expected. He'd spent decades trying to come to grips with it. He was always searching for something. Maybe finding gold while panning or buried treasure with his metal detector would help lead him to an answer. Or maybe it wouldn't. After stories by the fire, it was time to play poker. My dad was determined to make sure my brother and I knew how to play five-card draw. Our penny poker games would last for hours, into the dying light, as he taught us lessons, both overt and subvert, about strategy, bluffing, and having a poker face. There's a time when I could tell you instinctively, if a straight beat a three of a kind, it does. If a flush beat a full house, it does not. Or a four of a kind beat all the above, it does. I still instinctively love a good game of five-card draw, but only for pennies, as my dad also taught me that gambling was pretty much a zero-sum game. Part 13, Five-Card Draw. Winning the map piece from the guy in the saloon takes some luck and skill. While I do know how to play five-card draw very well after playing with my dad for many years, there is a deeper strategy to the game. I need not just a good hand and bet high enough, but also bet high at a time when the poker guy will not fold. Several times I have hands that I think are good enough and bet $9,000 or so only to have him show a better hand or give up and not offer the map as his bet. Persistence and good save game strategy 
Worked out in the end, though, and I managed to win the map piece with a three of a kind. Now, I had part of the map, and it was on my way. Next stop, the Lost Dutchman. Part 14, The Shitter. I recall my dad telling me once, as we were driving to a ghost town named Aurora, just on the border between California and Nevada, that the best place to find old artifacts was the site of an old outhouse. A guy sits in the shitter, pulls down his pants, and maybe his gun falls out of his holster into the pit. There's no way for him to get it out. It was a logic that could not be argued with. We spent the day in Aurora looking for sites of old outhouses, but we left with only a single silver coin from the 1930s. There are no outhouses in the Lost Dutchman Mine. There is a laundry in Goldfield, but it's the only building that can't be entered. Part 15. The Cave Grind I imagine finding the map parts will be easy. Unlike finding gold in the mines, which I just randomly entered after I found one, finding caves with map pieces is systematic. I start in the middle of the map near the top and move clockwise, clicking every 10 pixels or so, avoiding any mines and entering the caves I find. Many of the caves are emptied, in fact more of them than not, and still others look exactly the same as each other. I'm just at the point of frustration when I find the second map piece. It's three rope climbs down at the far bottom of the cave. I keep searching systematically around the edge of the map. I find the third piece at the exact 3 o'clock location on the overhead map at the end of the road leading back to Goldfield. This feels easy now. I'm on fire. The system seems to work. This is the third game loop, the cave grind. Three pieces feel like a good amount. I check the map in my inventory, but for the life of me, I cannot figure out where the map points. I look at the full map image provided on Dave Rakowski's complete guide blog page, and it looks to me like the location is the far left of the map. His blog says to look for a mine that has a cave-like hole in the ground where you need a rope to climb down. Once I find that, I know I've located the Lost Dutchman, but none of the mines on the left side have that feature. They all end in dead ends. So where is it? I find a cave with three rope climbs down and then locate another part of the map. But when I look at the image, it still gives me no more clues. Where is it? I thought with four pieces I'd have enough to find the Lost Dutchman, but I was wrong, wrong, wrong. I returned to Goldfield to get some supplies. I'm now buying steak as my food choice exclusively. I arranged my food inventory the way Dave Rakowski suggests, with half water and half food, and set out again. I'm ambushed, but even with a couple arrows in me, I keep going south towards that part of the map. I look into cave after cave, but nothing. The search begins to take a toll on me. I'm three actual days into my replay of the Lost Dutchman mine now. The health of my little man turns red often. I placate him with a cool drink and some steak. I think I might feel like the actual people searching for the Lost Dutchman mine now. With clues that point nowhere. With every clue looking the same. With every mine looking the same. I keep going, keep searching. I begin to sweat, sitting in my little chair, hovering over my laptop. Must find more map pieces. I thought I'd be done hours ago. I search more caves and more caves. I think I should stop playing, but I'm compelled to crush 33 years of waiting to keep searching. Indians shoot at me as I cross the desert. A cave-in gets my little man as he looks through a cave. He's hurt. I'm losing it. 
His health flashes yellow, red, yellow, red. I open my food inventory with a lot of meat and life-giving water. Have some more steak, little man, I say as I shove another T-bone into his little gullet with a canteen chaser. His health goes solid red. He is stable. But what about me? I decide to go back to town, but I'm ambushed again. My little man is hit with several arrows. This time it's fatal. And just to kick me in the teeth, the game makes me do a copy protection lookup before I can actually die. It requires me to search the actual manual for a page and sentence in a word. I find it. Accuse. I type it in. The game ends. I reload. I feel up in town and go one more time. I'm pretty sure I need the fifth map piece to help me locate the Lost Dutchman, because otherwise I have no clue where it could be. The map I found looks like no place on the real map. This makes no sense at all, or does it make perfect sense? I search every cave in the lower middle section, moving clockwise along the ridges of the mountains. Finally, I find a cave with several drops in, and I find it! Another map piece! I go to the inventory to look at the map once again. The new evidence will set me free. It will show me the way. And it does nothing. There is no new information at all. The map I have must be whole already. What? Damn it! But what? What is it? Where is it? I turn away from my laptop. I've been playing for eight hours straight today. I thought I was in the home stretch, yet now I have no idea what to do next. I never felt like this back in 1989 when I first played the game. I put it away back then, always thinking I'd have time to get back to it. Yet here I am, and the feeling is one of quiet desperation. The Lost Dutchman Mine really isn't even a great game. It's just okay. Hardly anyone in the world even knows that it exists. No one will ever care if I finish it or not. There is no street cred associated with it. I could quit now, and there would be zero repercussions except the opportunity cost of a lost weekend. Yet, I don't think I can do that. I'm filled with something like anger as I save the game and close my laptop for the afternoon. I think it's a crush of dread with the weight of decades and years piled on top. For the first time in three days, going on 33 years, I start to believe I will never find the Lost Dutchman Mine. Part 16, The Legend. People have been searching for the Lost Touch of Nine for over 140 years now, but it has not been found. There are many clues to where it might be, and people think they've located it, but it still remains elusive. Since Jacob Waltz was German, and the Germans were referred to as Dutchmen, but they were not actually Dutch, the legend most likely got its name from that fact, and not the actual name of a location of mine. The epilogue in the instruction manual for the game has this to say on the subject. Lost Dutchman Mine is set in southern Arizona in the late 1800s. The mining town of Goldfield actually existed in the shadow of the Superstition Mountains at the time, although today it's a collection of crumbling ruins. The lure of gold brought many prospectors to the area, as well as desperate men who try to take what others worked so hard to find. The Superstition Mountains still loom over the thriving desert metropolis of Phoenix, tempting thousands each year to venture into canyons in search of the legendary Lost Dutchman Mine. If you search YouTube.com right now, you will find multiple History Channel videos that say, Lost Dustman Mine Found! But it's clickbait. They include lots of legends and evidence going back hundreds of years, but the actual location of the mine and its walls of gold remain elusive. 
People have searched in vain for the lost Dutchman mine for almost two centuries with almost no luck. Thousands of people have wandered the Arizona desert following the supposed evidence, but it always leads to nothing. There are clues and maps and artifacts like the Peralta Stones that supposedly hint to the location of the treasure, but as of now, no one has actually found it. In some cases, it has driven people to the brink of sanity when they believe they are just about to locate the gold only to have it slip away just out of their reach once again. Others have disappeared entirely, lost in the Arizona desert, while still others claim the whole thing might be a curse. The fact is, there happen to be many lost mines that are supposedly the Lost Dutchman. Two in Arizona, one in Colorado, and one in California, where we did most of our prospecting with our dad. It's a legend that keeps growing and persisting, almost like the legend of the Old West itself, where fact and fiction mix to form a truth that is hard to unpack from reality. Part 17, Renewal. I embark on a long break on day number three in real time and take one of my kids to a local event called the Hometown Fair. It's the 50th anniversary of the fair which started in 1972. That means the fair was only 17 years old when I first played the Lost Dutchman Mine. I was only 19 years old. I see one person I know at the fair, a special needs kid named Stanley that I've known since kindergarten. He also works at my work. We talk a bit, then my kid and I look at arts and crafts before we walk down to the beach to get acai bowls. The whole time I forget about the lost Dutchman. My quest might be over for me. Maybe there's just no way to win the game. We return home. I check Facebook and see a second friend is finally leaving the hospital after a bout of both long COVID and a leukemia relapse. It's unclear if he is really healed or not, but seeing him smiling as he leaves the hospital is enough information for me at that exact moment. I feel renewed vigor. I fire up the laptop and once more boot the Lost Dustman mine. I can do this. I will finish this game today. No more wasting time. I just need to look at the map again. I check Dave Rakowski's full overhead map image too. I compare the map pieces with the full map and, hmm, what's this? I see a spot I might have missed before. It doesn't look like a mine should be there though. It might not be correct, but it's not where I thought it would be. I recall that Jacob Waltz said his mine was located where no miner would ever look, at least according to the legend in the instruction manual anyway. It's a spot that I thought I'd checked before, but maybe not. Now that I have the full map anyway, maybe having the full map is a trigger in the game that opened the Lost Dutchman. I fill my little miner man with a load of stakes and we leave Goldfield, heading towards a spot on the map. I stop along the way to fill my canteens. Chapter 18, The End of the Road. The gold prospecting trips with my dad ended in about 1997, after my brother and I both got married and my first kid was on the way. On one of the last trips, just after we found a very old, very hidden little town named Star City above Bridgeport in Northern California, my dad told us the final version of his World War II story. I didn't really get sent back behind the front lines because I was caught with a two-bit he started. Obviously believing at 27, we were finally ready to hear the real story. How much worse could it be? Were there two 
Did he murder someone? My mom wrote the War Department a letter. She begged them to take me from the front because my brother had died and I was the only remaining son. After several letters, they listened to her and I was sent back to work in the laundry unit. It embarrasses me to this day. I left the army feeling like a failure. I never got to fight. I won't even call myself a veteran. It was worse than and murder. It was shame. My dad was ashamed by his contribution to the war. That was pretty much the last time the three of us sat around a fire, played penny poker, and heard stories of my dad's youth. The last time we shot guns, panned for gold like real miners, or searched outhouse pits for dropped Colt 45s. You know that song, Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin? That is real. Part 19. Location, location, location. When my little miner makes it to the location that I'm now sure is the Lost Dutchman, I click the fire button and he is taken into a mine. All the mines look the same, just like the caves in the game, but this one has some long corridors that I do not recall from other mines. I feel good about this. When I reach the third floor down, I see what I'm looking for, a cave-like hole in the floor that requires me to drop a rope to climb down. I think I found it. I've saved the game and descend my rope. I enter a cave with glittering gold on every wall. I have found it. When I reach the bottom though, constant cave-ins kill my little miner man. Damn, I move too quickly. I reload and try again, but this time I'm more careful. I dodge some of the falling rocks and make it into the room on the right of the screen. There are multiple vertical ropes set in front of an entire wall of glittering gold. Spiders to send the ropes up and down. Spiders? Weird. If my little miner man touches a spider, he says, ow. I ply him with more steak and water and plan what to do next. I walk between each rope so that each descending spider misses me. When I get to the last rope, I climb, but the spider instantly knocks me to the ground. I try again and the same thing happens. I have a harsh, sudden feeling that this is as far as I will ever get. I've seen the end, right? I mean, this is the last room. Do I actually need to finish? I remember saying the same thing in 1986 about Ultima 4, a game I also never finished, just at the exact last room. Do I need to make it to the top? I think about the game itself. How might I review it in a magazine if those existed any longer? Lost Dutchman Mine is a good but not great game. Even for its time, the minigames are a bit too simple, and the gold search is too repetitive to be recommended to anyone but the most steadfast adventurers looking for a romp in the Old West. However, playing Lost Dutchman Mine fills the player with a sense of existential dread, the same type of dread that must fill the hearts of real-life adventurers who've tried to locate the actual Lost Dutchman Mine for the better part of two centuries, but have yet to succeed. This dread might not have been planned by the designers, but exists as a kind of emergent art from the proceedings. And in this form, the game is a rousing success, as it feels more real and more raw than few other games I've ever played. There's a good chance that most people who play this game back in the 1980s never got this far. Or if they did, they never got out of their mind to stake their claim. But I'm not thwarted today. Today I will not quit. I fill my little miner man with more steak and water so he is as healthy as I can get him. I'm going to do it this time. I try the last rope again, but this time, just as the spider is about to hit me, I push the joystick to the left. Why? I don't know. It was like an instinct. No instructions say push left. I just did it. The little miner man reaches out as if to take the rope next to him, but doesn't. However, when he's in this position, the spiders can't touch him. He's immune. They just slide right by in the ropes. This is it. 
the opening I'm looking for. I climb the rope a tiny bit and reach to the left every time I see a spider. I get to the top and onto the next screen. What I see is that the third rope from the left climbs through the ceiling of the second room. I climb back down the rope and after a couple more spider bites, fuel up my little man with steak and water once more. Then I climb and I climb and I reach to the left and I climb through the top and I keep going. I reach again and again to avoid spiders. I climb right through the top of the second screen and suddenly I'm out of the mine. I save the game and rush my little miner man back to town. I get to the assay office and I see what I'm looking for. A button marked claim. I click it. And this is what I see. Claim number 14.S139. Having staked your claim on the secret wealth of the gold ore, you become instantly rich and famous as the one who found the lost Dutchman mine. After 33 years, the end screen for The Lost Dutchman Mine is finally in my possession. It is finished. Part 20. Found in the Desert. Even though we didn't go with him any longer, my dad continued prospecting in the desert on his own, well into his 70s. He bought a second Toyota, one with an actual four-wheel drive with no camper on the back, but with a winch so he could get out of tight spaces. He took many trips alone into the 90s, searching. He would sleep in the bed under the stars just like he did in the U.S. Infantry. One time he got stuck in a flash flood near San Diego, but escaped unscathed because of the winch. Another time he took a trip with a group of historical enthusiasts to Black Rock Canyon in Arizona, over a long Thanksgiving weekend. His absence stood out to all of us that holiday. He never talked about finding any treasure though. The big score must have eluded him. When 9-11 occurred, I saw the fearless man I knew turn around entirely. He became a fearful recluse. He sunk into his room and listened to talk radio at all hours of the day. He stopped going out, stopped going on trips, and stopped planning his mining adventures. In time, the Toyota pickup left his driveway fewer and fewer times until one day it just sat there and never moved again. Soon, dementia took hold, and he himself stopped moving, too. After my dad died, I found a box in the garage with a label that said, Found in the Desert. In the past 11 years, I've never looked inside. No matter what's in there, I hope my dad found what he was looking for. Everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show, I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? 
course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hi, this is Ballistic Coffee Boy, host of That Atari Show. On That Atari Show, I feature Atari news, homebrews, game reviews, Atari podcasts, Atari books, interviews with content creators, game developers, and more, as well as have the occasional feature where I focus on one topic or product. On my channel, I also feature breaking Atari news on Atari Newsline, unbox retro goodies on Unboxed, Google over box art and manuals and RTFM, feature general vintage gaming content on BCB, and more. You can find me on YouTube by searching for Ballistic Coffee Boy. That's Ballistic with a K. So get your Java on and let's celebrate Atari from the 2600 on through to the new Atari VCS. Hope to see you there, fellow Atarians. Have a great one. Well, Jeff, I want to know what you thought of my movie. Um, you know, I was not very impressed, Steve. I think you need to put a little bit more work into these things. <laughs> I'm joking. Fuck you. That took a lot, a lot of time. It was fantastic. Uh, you got your voice on. You got your story on. You got your juxtaposition with Dad on. And you got your Atari ST game on. And it was all in the vertical blank. It was a home run Grand Slam, Wimbledon Grand Slam win with US Open, Australian Open, and whatever the other one is that's a French Open. Well, Jeff, I'm really happy that you liked it, actually, because I know I know I surprised you with it. Um, now, now, that was the story you can go to YouTube and search for Found in the Desert, Dad's Gun Skull, the Atari ST, and the Lost Touch with Mine, the movie, and you can actually watch the movie version. So we got a link to it. We recorded that audio version first, and then uh, and then I think about a month later I was done with the movie in time for our – I think it came out a week before the podcast. It was like about a week ago right? Uh, that we're going to launch this in a couple of days. So, and in that time, uh, I wanted to get visuals to go with the story, and it turned out that there was um, – we had some stuff. You know, we had some photos and stuff. Quite a, quite a lot of stuff. And I'd also played the game all the way through, and I wanted, I really, really wanted to show the game all the way through, like have a full playthrough. So yeah, that was I great, guess. actually. That was actually probably the best playthrough video I've ever seen because it isn't uh-huh. just showing hours and hours of a speed run. It is actually like the strategy, why, how, let me conquer this thing, and I conquered. And the spiders really made me angry. <laughs> I think that the developers, let's we'll talk about that. But I think the developers really were trying to find something. Like, what do you do at the end? You know, it's like, do you just go and pick the gold? You know, like, what do you what do you do? Um, you know, you had the instructions. Do the instructions say anything about reaching your hand over 
and being safe in you know any i'm gonna have to read i don't think they say anything but i should i should look you know i i should actually look and see if they uh, there's some the nothing not in the strategy and i think they're probably you know give me a sec and i'll look it up my assumption is the answer is no it doesn't say right. anything about that but it might if it does I'm gonna not gonna give it a break because if it does, there's absolutely no reason why you would internalize that information w before you play the game because because right. you would you would literally not you there's no other place in the game where where you would you would actually do that where you would actually move your hand over. I'll tell um, you the the other most frustrating thing besides the spiders was the fact that while you're playing when you died you had to type in a word from the manual to die. <laughs> yes, that's to true. die. It's, it's so here like, it says caves and mines. Using the rope, if you have a rope, you can descend the shafts in the caves. A rope will attach to a convenient point overhead. You can descend to a lower level. A pair of gloves is recommended to keep your hands from burning on the rope. You had That's gloves, right? You had gloves, right? Yeah. So possibly, if you didn't have the gloves, when you put your hand out, you would not have been safe from the spiders. Maybe, but I, I think it was so random. <laughs> I'm honestly, it's, it's very it's, random. But that's how some of these games were made back then. Games were hard back then. Games are hard now, but everyone says that the that games were so much harder back then. And I don't play enough modern games to know that maybe that's why I don't play modern games because I've been beaten down by all the games from 1975 until 19 until 2005. Where like every game I played just was if I beat anything it was, uh it, it took a magnificent amount of every ounce of my freedom, right and my adrenaline and my soul, and now you can probably finish a game in like an hour. Yeah, I don't know. No, I I don't think there's a games that are long. I think what happens is a lot of modern games have big long story segments. And then they've got pretty pretty ramping up game segments to the point where some of them are extremely hard. Like when I was watching Last of Us on HBO, I could see where the game would have been. Right. And I'm really happy I didn't play it because no. I would have just been annoyed by most of the. No, I love the I love the show. I love the story. I would like to just watch the game with being played straight through as a story, but I don't want to play it and watch the story. Right. Yeah. Like it doesn't it doesn't like I can see I see the set pieces where you have to do things like the greatest like anyway, good, good show. See it. But the one where they're in the house where they get to shoot all the guys in the street. Perfect set piece taken directly from Medal of Honor. Yes. But anyway, um, so we so we're talking so we're talking more about the Atari ST game and your story. And what I was very, very thought was really cool, obviously, is because the way you always were able to stick in dad. And I block out <laughs> all the dad things because I, I mean, let's just let's be honest. I mean, I mean, there's there's obviously some there's obviously some mental health benefits to to writing these stories. There is. Them, now right? I wanted to ask you a really a, a question from very mediocre author to good author. If you could if you had to write the same thing about something, but it wasn't personal at all, how much of a struggle would it be? Um, I'm somewhat attempting to do that with the next one. Oh, okay. okay. Which is about Dungeon Master. So I'm attempting to write 
a story about Dungeon Master from the standpoint of playing the game in the past. So it is kind of personal it, still. There's a little bit, but it's not there's not a big story about it. Like I played it and I loved it, right? Like it's not there's not a huge story around it. There is a story I believe around the guys who made it. I don't know if that's a good example. I had something I was going to put in there, but I think it's going to make it too long. So I'm trying to do something about uh, about Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeon Masters and and in uh, that game, along with along with the you know FTL. Um, but that's a good point, Jeff. I mean, we think so. That's not even a good example because it's still. I mean, what do you mean? Like, can I can I not be in it playing a game at all? Like, what do no. you ask me? Your what I mean, I'm talking about personal. So I'm saying all every 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 great story I've read of yours. It, it takes a little piece of your heart and soul to write the story because it's about people we know. But if you had to go in and do a purely uh, fictional that was only from your collected experience and readings, but not necessarily your experience, could you could you do the same thing? I'm just I, wondering. I'm just I wondering. don't I don't think so. I think you could. But I was just I just wanted to know because I couldn't. And that's the thing. Like if I dig deep. And I find something intensely personal, I can write about it and I can leave out the most personal stuff so that I can get something good. I don't try it very Well, that often. is a key too. Like you, you, you were advising me today when something else and it was like, right. like, Hey Steve, why don't you take out that personal stuff? And I, I did. And it actually made it better because it, it let the story focus more on actual events and not on that stuff. It was kind of, sometimes it clouds it a little bit. There was a lot more in the Lost Dutchman mine one that I could have put in. There's a lot more to that story about Stumbletown. For example. oh god, I, I have all my notes. I have all my. I have a diary about I, Stumbletown. Stumbletown is Stumbletown could be an entire episode of something else. You right? didn't even Wouldn't mention really... Dave. You didn't mention Dave. Not his. No, not I did his mention. Real name. That's what I'm saying. Like, like there's a, so much more about. I didn't mention the biker gang. You know, there's so much no. more that could have gone into that bunch of story. I didn't mention anything about the Ross people. Perot and the, yeah, there's, there's a lot Ross about that Perot, whole, exactly. The whole trip to Stumbletown that is its own story unto itself, but it doesn't, it doesn't fit into the vertical blank, right? No, like, like I think the bits that I, what I was trying to do with the Stumbletown was explain how we learned how to pan for gold and what yes. I was trying to do with the, with the, with the gun story was talking about how dad taught us, to shoot and these were things that you actually do in the game at the same time so that's what i was trying to do was juxtapose the things in the game with real yes. life experiences was... and then my goal was to have them coalesce at the end there being a reason why both of these stories were being told it was very grapes of wrath and you did a good job right. uh, grapes of wrath yeah exactly very grapes of wrath um and it was good it wasn't you weren't trying to do that but that's that's how good stories are told I was going to say that if you think about that time, 1992, is so, so close economically and country-wise to right now. Interest rates were high, there weren't that many jobs, and so Stumbletown was full of basically homeless people with, with hot dogs on their right, last hot were, dog. Who were, looking who were for attempting gold. to make a living right. living there and trying to pant for gold. And That's I'm exactly sure it's like that again up there now. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of those rivers have lots of people living on them, right. trying to make a living of some type. And and I'll be honest with you, if you can if you can live there, it's a nice experience. If you can get it's a I great mean, the place, river is too. beautiful. If you can manage it, 
and be comfortable. It's great. It's we never just went one back. thing. It's just one thing. Our two weeks there was it two weeks basically about a week and a week half. And a half. Week. Our week and a half there was us on a vacation. Every other person on Sumble Town's week and a half there. That was just another week and a half of their the, month. Well, of were, their life. Yeah, of their week life. and a half of their life. They were not on vacation. And that's because dad took us on the weirdest vacations that were awesome. Like, yeah, like want to put a little hair in your chest? Go on a vacation with dad. <laughs> I found them at the at the time when we were going on them as kids. I really just desperately wanted to go on like a regular trip. Yeah, but I just want to go. I'll tell sit you by what, I wouldn't trade them for a regular trip. I can now. sit by a pool now. I'm yeah. glad we had those vacations with dad. Exactly. exactly because th there were so many interesting things, you know, that, that we got to see and do. And some of them weren't as interesting. Some of them are very samey, you know, like you go to, you see one ghost town, you see them all, right. They're not, they're not all. Um, I mean, they're all just a bunch of broken buildings. You know, it's not, it's not as fun as you would, you know, it's not like the Brady bunch, you know, a lot of it's just, you know, collapsed crap in the middle. There of the was somewhere. a couple places that would look a little bit like the Brady Bunch town. We came to some pretty nice places that were like, this is a small version of Bodie. Yeah. When we found them, it was neat. I think Masonic was one of them. It Masonic was one buildings. of them. Yes. yes. And obviously Bodie is huge. And, and, and Columbia, um, you know, there were, there were a couple others that had sizable you know, buildings and stuff, but, but that was, I, again, I wouldn't, now I wouldn't trade that for anything, even though then I was like, why can't we go to Lake Tahoe? <laughs> like, you know, what's fun at Lake Tahoe. I mean, it's fun if you, if you boat, it's fun if you water ski, you know, it's fun if you have something to do, but we probably would have just sat, did nothing. So Let me ask you a question about that time though, rounded back to the ST. Did we have the Atari ST at that time? Yeah, absolutely. We had the Atari. No. 1992. Yeah, we had, I mean, we had it. We had we the ST. Playing. It was in dad. We had moved it to dad's room. We were using that's when we had the P that's when we had the DOS. Yeah, Stumbletown. But everything before that was was definitely with the ST. Now, what did we buy the so the ST went in mothballs? Was that our around our birthday or was that after way later? Like, no, we bought it for our birthday, bought a, a PC for our birthday. So 1992. Yeah. So this is after ST time. So I remember before that on campy trips, I would always bring my ST format and ST action magazines. Yeah. So we had to ride in the back of the truck and sometimes it was in the back of the camper. And sometimes if we were, if we were lucky enough to like go on a motel trip or something, we would just be in the camper shell. Yes. And one of us would have to ride in the back, one of us would ride in the front. And the back was... But let's just say it's the back had an actual seat in the back. It was not... It was comfortable in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 don't, it now. I, don't, I don't think it was that safe when you really get down to it. But it had a seat. Belt. Oh, no. I, yes. It was It was not like thrown in the back of it without... You actually had a seat and you had seat belts and it was... But it's still... It was probably... It was, it was a harrowing experience. Yeah, and then in the back there, in the back of the camper when you're riding, that was a fun time to read magazines. And in the yes. back of the the back of the camper show also play the links. Play the links if there were batteries for it. Right, the camp. Yeah. We had rechargeable batteries, so every place we stopped, we we recharged the batteries. We just didn't recharge them at Stumbletown at all. Yeah, we couldn't. The, it was it was lots of ST magazines. Yeah, lots of X STF between I think between eighty seven. And 91, we were definitely probably had an ST magazine or two or three on every single every single trip we went on. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and yeah, we would we would read through ST action reviews. I'd look at the games I wanted to get. It was it was fun. Like that's what we would do um, in between all the other stuff.
one thing I'll say about, and this is this pertains to the ST and the 3060X40, but more about the ST is that from it took a long time from that January of getting the DOS machine and being frustrated with not having like a good shell like like Gem. Try to find action games that equaled anything close to what you could play on the ST. We found shareware games. It took a while for it to sink in that there finally was good games. Like yeah. We had to really, really search. We had a, so I, when we found... I'm going to say we found Final Orbit. I remember Final Orbit, yes, which was, Final Orbit, which was yes. a fun game. But if you, like if you would go to the store at the time uh, for the IBM PC and you'd say you would buy the Sega pack with like four Sega right. games in it, all absolute garbage. No, 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 no. There was one good oh, one. What was this it? is the one that I really like. Alien Syndrome. Okay, Alien Syndrome. Fine. And we had it, and I had it on the ST. Also, I that's one that I replicated by buying that because it had Alien Syndrome. But, but like, they were if, all EGA if you at, went at best. And bought a like Street Fighter. Yeah, it was just it was awful. Pieces but, of just garbage games. So was the ST version, but but yeah, this was even worse. The great stuff about the 386, the the Sound Blaster and the VGA was only used really in quote unquote multimedia games or you know, adventures and things. They really action games were only done by shareware people at the time, like Moroff's Pinball and and obviously the you know Apogee and things. Yeah, like Commander Keen, Joe of the Jungle. And those games were good though. I mean, it was like no one. We, uh, well, I read the shareware book by by Richard Moss, and a lot of people did buy those games. Like we were not in the minority. There's a billion PCs out there, and we did have some of those games. And I purchased a few, and uh, and we there they money was being made, which That's is good. good. Yeah, I kind of want to get that book. That that book sounds good. The shirt. Oh, you don't have it? No, it's fantastic. No, it's just I think it's too. I think I looked at it, it was too expensive for me at the time. I'm, I'm, I have that one, and I want to get this one about the secret of Mac gaming. Yeah. Too. So good. I mean, I'm mean, glad that you enjoyed it. It was a big undertaking to do the video. I tried to get every frame in it as as close to perfect as possible every one of those pieces of video of the game i is, know is has the exact put on the screen in the exact same coordinates um so that it, doesn't do, it, it was moments. it was fun there were some nice uh we got i got um some nice comments from people that they liked it um we're over. inching up to a thousand subscribers too yeah, no let me see let me let me let me we're at like 763 or something like that 762 uh, or is it where is it where did i put it and another one i can't believe i i went away from it i had it up here so i could do this but um we go in and see um some nice stuff that people said you know hey and if you if you make another comp you go to the youtube and you make a comment we'll read it next time but atari legend who who i'm who i'm a big fan of now um reading atari legends that's that's martin yeah his website has great reviews on it oh my god and, his website and fantastic. his yeah. videos are great he said uh hey oh my god steve this is the most beautifully written and very personal atari related video i've seen in a long time maybe ever i'm like that that's cool yeah, because um, by the way, that's coming from Martin, who has made the greatest Atari ST videos of all time. Yeah, no, he, he I saw his stuff and it was great. His stuff um, is really good. Uh, Tim, I want to say bunch, bunchin, bunch. It's hard for oh, me yeah, to read yeah. it. It's, it's a. Um, he said, "I've never heard of this game until just a few days ago, but now I'm itching to fire it up. This is a great story, entirely relatable. I think." as I think all of us who continue using our entire computers or game systems of the present day, looking for something, most likely some kind of window into the past or way to experience some of the things we never got back in the day. 
this video tells a story for all of us. I, I, I that was exactly what this is. That's fantastic. Here's, exactly. here's what, here's what I, here's what I, I really enjoyed about the comments so far. There, first of all, the, the, um, the jerkwad didn't come by. There's a guy who. No, jerkwad didn't come um, by. But, but when I read these things, everybody seemed to get it, and I'm like, finally. I was able to write something that the point got across. <laughs> yes, the point got across. It was maybe good. that's my thing. It's like, oh, well, now now I have a I have a a a, um, a formula where the, the what is ever in my head can actually get right. People are getting it. Yeah, right? this down. is a good. This so, is a good form, and that's what I like. And so there's lots of the comments. I'll read some of them later, but those are the ones that are just at the top. Uh, but but I'd say if you like the story in this podcast, please go watch the video. Watch the video. It it, it, it kind of shows, it's it shows the whole thing. Um, and well, pictures, I'm going to say what this is going to be the first one in a long time where we are actually going to be put, putting up the video, the YouTube, po this podcast on YouTube, this version, which um and we're and it's going to be the primary link is to YouTube. And then we'll have links in to go to see the other one because I, I want to start getting people to watch on YouTube. Now we'll have the links to go to the website on the YouTube page where you can where you can go listen to it on um, the a, a podcatcher too. But I'm trying to get, I want to get the videos all the, these as we make the episodes. We want to get them on YouTube as audio, but we can listen in the background because I know a lot of people do that. Yeah, um, and that's what we hear that people have asked us actually said, why don't we have to the, do have the podcast on YouTube? And we did it for a while. I thought it would I thought it would like kind of kind of pollute the feed, but I, I don't think that's true. I think people no, do it. it. You just need to put them in a special category and we'll understand. Well a lot of people make a video and call it a podcast and put it up on YouTube now. And then the audio of the video goes in the podcast. We're doing the opposite. Yeah, we're kind right? of doing the opposite. We're, we're doing the opposite, but that's okay. Then we have a, okay. So we have a new song from Tony Longworth that's coming up right after we do our Into the Vertical Blanks, and it is called "The Blood Before You." The blood before you. Good exactly. job, Tony. Tony, Tony, we um we want Tony to help us with our Atari VCS work later this year too. So we're yes, and we did. Oh, uh, we can mention that slightly. We don't have it yet. We're going to next time. We're going to incorporate an interview with. Uh, with Mission Ed Possible, uh, we had we interviewed Ed here at our house. And he interviewed us, and we're going to have the, an audio version of that next time. And the reason I'm telling that is about Tari, because Ed wants to make Tari VCS game with us. Fantastic! Oh shoot, we should do that. Yeah, he's he wants to make an endless runner or something like okay. that. Okay, and I thought that would be an interesting would thing be fun. to think about. <laughs> that sounds right. Like fun. Exactly. Exactly. He actually wants to make a card out of everything. I'm thinking, let's do. Let's it. do. It. That sounds right? cool. That sounds really fun. Um, and Ed knows a lot about assembly languages already, so it's like we may bog we may bog him down. Yeah, no, that's probably um, the case. But but it should be fun anyway. I like that he wants to do it. That that's cool. I exactly. I did like meeting him too. He was I was at your house and I was like, wow, this Ed's a good he's dude. A good dude. It's a good dude. I mean, a lot of these. Atari guys that we're meeting. Um, Ed is a full-on Atari guy too. Yeah, Atari VCS, Atari 800, Atari ST, and other systems. He's kind of an Atari guy like we are. This is Mission Ed possible, right? Yeah, Mission Ed, Ed possible. Ed, Ed could be the fifth <laughs> brother because he's full Atari all the time, just like Tony and Brian. And, uh, right. and Brian. All right, the Atari Brotherhood. No, no, I'm we'll never going to make something like that. that. Called that. Sorry, but I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Nothing I'm joking. like that. Nothing like. That. Okay. Anyway, let's uh, speaking of Tony, let's get Tony's song going after Into the Vertical Blank, uh, Steve. Yeah, Into the Vertical Blank. 
into the Virgo Black. Hi, this is Tony Allworth, UK dark alternative music composer and all-round Atari nut. Make sure to check out my Patreon music campaign. That's patreon.com slash Tony Longworth. Lots of free music over there. And if you can afford a dollar or two, please help me continue to write music. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast and supporting Into the Vertical Blank. And I hope you like this piece of music of mine.
into the vertical black. Rocket Studios production.